The title of it is What Jesus Said About the Unpardonable Sin. Now before we get into our list of texts that you've received as you came in tonight, I would just like to say that the Bible presents a picture of God as the great forgiver. We find in the Bible several analogies of God as the magnanimous, as the merciful, as the forgiver, as the generous, as the loving, as the kind. I'd like to share some of those um, analogies that the Bible presents about God's forgiveness as we begin our study this evening. In Psalm 103 and verse 12, God says that he will remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, how far is the east from the west? Have you ever stopped to calculate that? Well, actually, it's infinite, isn't it? That's how far God promises to remove our sins from us. The Bible also tells us that God promises to exercise divine amnesia when it comes to our sins. Because in Isaiah 43 and verse 25, God promises that he will remember our sins no more. Now, an analogy which is very appropriate for Fresno, in Isaiah 44 and verse 22, God says that he will do away with our sins as the sun does away with the fog. You know, there's fog, and then when it gets to be 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, the fog is gone because the sun has burned it off. That's what God is going to do with our sins, according to Isaiah 44 and verse 22. In Micah 7 and verse 19, God says that he will take our sins, he will cast them into the depths of the sea. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, God uses the laundry analogy. He says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Matthew 18 and verse 22, God uses the analogy of debt. There you have the parable of the two debtors. There was one debtor who owed his Lord far more than he could ever pay in a lifetime or many lifetimes. And his uh, overlord forgave him all of his debt. In Isaiah 38 and verse 17, God says that he will take our sins and he will cast them behind his back where he cannot see them. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 in verses 3 through 8, uses the analogy of the court of law. God will justify us or pronounce us not guilty in his court of law. Hebrews 7 and verse 25, God tells us that he will save us to the uttermost. So we have a whole series of promises in the Bible as to the total and complete forgiveness of God. Now we find illustrations of God's forgiveness in the Bible too. For example, one of the worst sins that I have found in my Bible is the sin or the two sins that David committed in the Old Testament. Actually there were more than two, but the two main ones that we know of are adultery and murder. Do you know that the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13 that God forgave those two horrendous sins of David? Now. Because of all of these analogies that we find in the Bible, when we turn to our beginning text in our list tonight, we're surprised to discover that there is a sin in the Bible which God cannot forgive. How is it that we have all of these analogies about the great forgiving power of God, and suddenly you have a passage where we're told that there's a sin that God will not forgive. Turn with me in your Bibles to the passage which speaks about this sin. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, and we want to read verse 28, and then we'll also read verses 31 and 32. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28. Here Jesus is speaking, and he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God... Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God, right? Now, we notice in this passage that those who were present, particularly the Jewish leaders, said that Jesus cast out demons not by the Spirit of God, but he cast out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. 
Now let's go to verses 31 and 32, which speak about the sin that these individuals are in the process of committing. Verse 31 says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Strange passage. Almost doesn't sound like God. This God who forgives to a thousand generations, according to what it tells us in the commandment. And here we find a passage that tells us that there's a sin that God will not forgive in this life or in the life to come. Now, what is this sin and why is it not forgivable? Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 17. And uh, it's, the panorama is going to get a little more complicated until it gets simpler. We're going to find in this verse a very interesting concept. Here, the beloved disciple of Jesus tells us, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't Romans 6 verse 23 say that the wages of sin is death? It says here, all unrighteousness is sin, but there is sin which is not unto death. Now, what could he mean there is sin that is not unto death? Evidently, there are two categories of sin. One category is unto death, and the other category is not unto death. By the way, that's where some people get the idea that there are venial sins and mortal sins. But we're going to find tonight that that's not exactly what the Bible is trying to say when it tells us that there are sins that are not unto death. The fact is that this concept of having sins that are unto death and sins that are not unto death actually comes from the Old Testament context. You see, in the Old Testament, there were also two main categories of sin. There were sins that were unto death, and there were sins that were not unto death. Now, what am I talking about? Go with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 15. And remember, the Lord Jesus is a good Jew. He knows the scriptures. And so this concept would have been very, very clear in his mind. Numbers, chapter 15. And I want you to notice, if you have the Seminar Bible, we're not going to read the whole uh, passage, but uh, notice chapter 15 and verse 22. What is the subtitle there? Laws concerning what? Unintentional sin. Basically, these, these are sins that are committed due to human weakness. They are unintentional. They are missteps. They are mistakes. That's one class of sins. Now, I ask you, if these sins were not confessed, would they lead to death? If they were not confessed, even these sins? Of course. But these sins, when they were committed, because they were unintentional due to human weakness, the sinner could take an animal to the sanctuary, shed the blood of the animal, and his sin was forgiven. That's why the sin was not unto death. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Because it was possible to offer blood to atone for that sin because it was not a premeditated sin. So the first kind of sin is the sin that we commit due to human weakness. It's not intentional. When we commit it, we say, oh, no, I blew it again. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done. That type of sin. But there's another kind of sin in the Old Testament. Notice what it says there also in Numbers chapter 15, and starting with verse 30. What is the subtitle there? Laws concerning what? Presumptuous sin. These are sins which are called in the Old Testament sins with a high hand. They are intentional sins. They are premeditated, so to speak. They are committed in God's face. Excuse the expression. People who say, I'm going to sin no matter what, I'm going to do this, and I don't care what the consequences are going to be. They are sins that are committed, and there are no pangs of conscience because they are committed. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Is there any 
possible sacrifice or atonement for this kind of sin. Absolutely not. Because the Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But these are sins which people commit and they feel absolutely no need to repent of them or to confess them. And incidentally, there's an example of this type of sin in the succeeding context. Do you know what the subtitle is? Do you notice in chapter 15 and starting with verse 32? What is the subtitle there? Penalty for what? For violating the Sabbath. Now, I have no doubts that the Israelites, at one point or another, maybe they got involved in talking about secular things, you know, and they didn't catch themselves, but eventually they did, and they say, oh no, we've been doing things on the Sabbath that we're not supposed to, and they begged the Lord's forgiveness, and the Lord forgave them. But if you read this passage, you're going to find that this man was in God's face. You see, the fourth commandment said very clearly that we're not supposed to work on the seventh day. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. But if you read this passage, this man says, I don't really care what God says. He says that I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath. Well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to pick up sticks and let's see what he does about it. Now, is that a sin unto death? You better believe it's a sin unto death because it's a sin with a high hand. It's intentional. It's premeditated. It's in God's face. And so there are two kinds of sins in the Old Testament. There are sins due to human weakness, and those sins, people, when they've committed them, they repent of them, they're sorry, they confess them, they took the animal, they shed the blood, their sin is forgiven. On the other hand, there are those sins which people don't feel any need to repent of. They are sins that are committed with a high hand. They are sins that are premeditated. There is no sacrifice for such a sin. Now, with this in mind, we can read also Psalm 19 and verse 13, where David is praying to God for God to deliver him from the possibility of committing such a sin. Here David says, keep back your servant also from what? From presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and notice this, and I shall be innocent of what? Of great transgression. This isn't any old transgression. This is great transgression. Now, tonight we want to take a closer look at this second type of sin. The sin with a high hand. The Bible calls it in the New Testament the sin against the Holy Spirit. But before we study this uh, sin in detail, we want to notice several key principles that will form the foundation for what we're going to take a look at. First of all, I want us to remember that each one of us is given by God freedom of choice. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. God gives us freedom of choice. Here God says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what? Choose life that both you and your descendants might live. You could also write down another verse that's not here, Joshua 24 and verse 15, where Joshua tells Israel, Choose ye this day whom you will serve. In other words, all of us are given in this world the freedom of choice. Now the problem is that because of sin, we in ourselves do not know what the right choice is. Not only do we not know what the right choice is, but even if we did know, we would not have the power to make that choice. Notice what it says in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verses 9 and 10. There's a problem with the heart of man. It says there, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
Do you know that, that there's a sobering fact, and it is that we don't even know our own heart? We might think we know our own heart, but we don't. Because our heart, according to this, is desperately wicked. Who only really knows our heart? Verse 10, the answer comes, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So every one of us has the freedom of choice. Every one of us has also, by God, been given the possibility of choosing the good over the evil. The only problem is, in ourselves, we don't know the difference between good and evil, and even if we did, we would not have the capacity, the power, to perform the evil and to reject the good. This is the reason why God has given each one of us also, besides the freedom of choice, he has given us some aid or some help so that we might be able to know what is good and we might have the power to choose it. Now, there's a little word that describes that which God has given to every man in the world. It's called the voice of your conscience. The voice of your conscience helps you see what is wrong and what is right, and the voice of conscience will tell you this is right, choose it, and do it. Now what is conscience? If you examine the Bible carefully, you'll discover that conscience is simply the voice of the Holy Spirit of God speaking in the midst of the turbulent human passions. The conscience is the voice of God's Spirit telling you, this is right, walk ye in it, this is evil, reject it. So all of us have freedom of choice. All of us have the aid of the Holy Spirit of conscience to give us the distinction between what is right and what is wrong. Now we need to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit a little more carefully so that we can understand what this sin is. The Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, has three main functions. And we want to take a look at those functions right now. Go with me to John chapter 16 and verse 8. John chapter 16 and verse 8. Let's notice the first function of the Holy Spirit. It says there in John 16 and verse 8, And when he has come, that is when the Spirit has come, he will convict the world of what? Of sin. So who is it that points out sin? The Holy Spirit. Is, uh, does the voice of conscience tell us that this is evil, that this is wrong? Yes or no? Yes, so what is the voice of your conscience? It's the voice of the Holy Spirit. But now listen to what I'm going to say. The Holy Spirit has an instrument through which he shows us what is wrong. And what is that? You notice it says here that he will convict the world of what? Of sin. Now let's ask the question, what is sin? Go with me to 1 John. I heard the answer. That's correct. Let's read it. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is what? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is transgression of the law. So what does the Holy Spirit do when he whispers in our conscience? He says, this that you're thinking about doing is what? Is sin. Or this which you have already done is sin. And what is sin? It is breaking God's holy law. So how is it that the Holy Spirit shows us our sin? By showing us what? The law. In other words, we can imagine that the Holy Spirit... By the way, he's a person according to the Bible. He's not an essence or a simple power. He is a person. He can be grieved. He can be saddened. There are many characteristics that indicate that the Holy Spirit is a person. But the Holy Spirit, we can imagine, he's a person, and in his hand he has a mirror. The Bible calls the law of God a mirror. And so the Holy Spirit comes and he says, listen, that which you did is wrong. You need to repent of it. You need to confess it. 
And what does the Holy Spirit show us so that we can see that what we did is wrong? He shows us God's holy law. For example, if we go out and cheat on our wife, of course we wouldn't do that, none of us in here anyway, but if we cheated on our wife, what would the Holy Spirit show us? He would show us the commandment that says, Thou shalt not what? Thou shalt not commit adultery. So a primary function of the Holy Spirit is to show us our sin or our transgression of God's holy law. And by the way, throughout the Bible, the Spirit is always closely connected to the Ten Commandments. Go with me to Exodus 31. I want you to see this. Because some people say, oh no, I don't have to go by the commandments. I've got the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard that before? Like saying the law is on one side and the Spirit is on the other. A contradiction between the law and the Spirit. No, the law and the Spirit go together because the Holy Spirit is the one who actually wrote the Ten Commandments. Let's notice that. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. Here it's speaking about the Ten Commandments uh, that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Notice who wrote them. It says there, And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. How many persons are there in the Trinity? Dumb question. Trinity means three, right? But I wanted to make a point. There are three. Now, which of the three persons was the one who actually wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone? It says it was the finger of God. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We just read this. But let's read it again. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28. There it tells us how Jesus cast out demons. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28 says... But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, how did Jesus cast out demons? By the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now let's go over to the Gospel of Luke and compare what, the way that Luke expresses this. Luke 11 and verse 20. Jesus cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Now Luke has a little different way of expressing it. He's explaining what Jesus meant. It says there in verse 20, But if I cast out demons with what? With the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what is the finger of God? The finger of God is the Holy Spirit. So who wrote the Ten Commandments? It was written in letters of fire. What does fire represent? Fire came down on the day of Pentecost. Fire is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit with his own finger wrote the Ten Commandments. Didn't he? And the Holy Spirit comes with the law that he wrote on tablets of stone. And when we commit a sin, the voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice of conscience tells us, hey, what you did was wrong. You need to repent of what you've done. You need to confess it. You need to make it right. Because the Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness. And so the Holy Spirit, through the law, convicts me of what? Convicts me of sin. Now listen to what I'm going to say. The Bible says that the law is spiritual. Do you know one of the problems that the Jews had in Christ's day? They didn't see the law as being spiritual. For them, the law was simply a list of rules to live up to. The law was written on tables of stone, and they were always comparing their external behavior with the law. They said, hmm, I've kept the Sabbath pretty well today. Oh, I, I haven't committed adultery with anybody. You know, I haven't, taken out a, I haven't taken out a knife, and I haven't killed anybody today. And so because their external behavior was right, they felt that they were in harmony with God's law. But you see, the law is spiritual. The law not only reaches to our external behavior, the law reaches into the heart and it detects the condition of the heart. Your motives, your intentions, your thoughts, your feelings. Remember Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to covet her has already committed adultery in his heart. Whoever is angry with his brother has already, committed has already committed murder in his heart. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is not concerned only with us correcting our external behavior. The law is spiritual. It goes into the depths of our heart, and it even points out the bad motives and the bad emotions and the bad feelings and the evil thoughts, and it brings them to light. And I'll tell you that when the Pharisees realized that, they saw that they were in very deep trouble because even though they had never uh, actually committed adultery with a woman, 
they certainly had coveted women before. Even though they had never killed somebody, they knew that at that time they hated Jesus, and so they were committing murder in their hearts. So the spiritual law was coming in and was detecting the sin which was in their heart. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So the Holy Spirit shows us our sin inside and out, and you can't hide from it. You can hide your sin from men, but you cannot hide your sin from God. Because the Holy Spirit, through the law, as the voice in our conscience, shows us sin. So that's the first function of the Holy Spirit, is to show, not, show us our wickedness, show us that we are evil, show us that we are sinners, by showing us the mirror of God's law and saying, you don't measure up. But thank God that there's another function of the Holy Spirit. Because if this was his only function, we'd be in trouble. It would be a pretty pessimistic life, wouldn't it? All the time the Holy Spirit said, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. Now you need to correct this, you need to correct that. It would be a negative life. Who's going to take care of these problems would be our question. Well, the fact is that the Holy Spirit has another function. And that function is when he has pointed out our sin, it is also his role to point us to Jesus as the solution for our sin. The Holy Spirit is the representative of Jesus. In other words, he not only points out our sin, he not only points out the dark side, the bad side, but he also says, hey, if you want forgiveness for that sin, if you want that sin to be cleansed, there's a solution. I can guide you to Jesus, and in the blood of Jesus there is forgiveness. I want you to notice that in John chapter 16, once again, and verse 8. John chapter 16 and verse 8. It not only says that he will convince the world of sin, but he will also convince the world of two other things. It says he will convince the world of sin and what else? And of righteousness. Let me ask you, who is our righteousness according to the Bible? The Lord is our righteousness. Who lived a perfect life to give us his righteousness? Jesus lived a perfect life to give us his righteousness. So it says he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of what? And of judgment. And folks, if we have been convicted of our sin, if we have been brought to Jesus, who is our righteousness, we have absolutely no reason to fear the judgment. Now, I'd like to read two or three passages where the role of the Holy Spirit is spoken of as pointing people to Jesus, specifically. Notice John chapter 16 and verses 13 to 15. Here Jesus says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And now notice verse 14. He will glorify whom? Me. To whom does the Holy Spirit point? Not only point out your sin, he points you to Jesus. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Notice also uh, what it says in chapter 14, chapter 14 and verse 26. It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. So the role of the Holy Spirit is not only to point out sin inside and out, but the role of the Holy Spirit is also to point us to Jesus as the solution for sin. He directs our minds to Christ. And when we see Christ, we see one who has shed his blood for us, and we, and we say, praise the Lord, that there's a solution to this problem which the Holy Spirit has shown me. But you know, the Holy Spirit does more than this. Not only does he point out my sin, not only does he point me to Jesus as the solution for my sin, the Holy Spirit does something else. Let's go back to John chapter 16, and let's notice verse 13. Let's read carefully there. There's something else that he does. Chapter 16 and verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into some truth. Oh, thank you. 
there are people out there. Okay, let me read that again correctly. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into most truth. How much? Thank you very much. I'll read it again. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. Incidentally, this is the reason why in John chapter 14, if you'll go back there with me, John chapter 14 and starting with verse 16, notice the very significant words. It says there, Jesus speaking, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of what? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And now notice the significant verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Who says he's going to come to us? Jesus. Now wait a minute. How can Jesus come to us if he's in heaven? How? Because he sends his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit represents Jesus. So woe to any man on earth who claims to be the representative of Christ other than the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is his representative on earth. He teaches about Jesus. He leads people to Jesus. He is called the Spirit of truth. Now we need to ask the question, what is the truth that the Holy Spirit leads people to? See, he points out sin. He shows you that you're a sinner. He shows you Jesus who died for your sins so that your sin can be taken care of. And then he guides you into all of the truth. But what is the truth that he guides you into? I mean, truth is almost kind of like an abstract term. Well, let's notice what Jesus himself had to say about the identity of truth. John chapter 17 and verse 17. And you know this verse, you could repeat it from memory, I'm sure. John 17 and verse 17, the same Jesus speaking in the same context of the Gospel of John where he's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the culmination of his sermon on the Holy Spirit. This is a prayer to his Father, but it's in the same context. It says in verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So what does the Holy Spirit lead you to? The truth. But where is the truth found? In the word of God. So the Holy Spirit leads you into all the truth. Not some not most, not almost all, all the truth, according to the Bible. It's the role, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, to lead you into all truth, and the Word is truth. And incidentally, let me say something, the Holy Spirit never works independently of the Word. It says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, that the sword of the Spirit is what? Is the Word of God. See, the Holy Spirit works through His sword. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. In other words, he's called the Spirit of Truth. He leads us into all truth, but the Bible says that the Word of God is what? Is truth. So he leads us into all of the truth as we find it in the Word of God. Go with me to Psalm 119, 142, and let's notice what else is truth. Psalm 119, that's the longest psalm in the Bible. Psalm 119 and verse 142. Notice here what it says. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is what? Your law is the truth. So not only is the word of God the truth, but the law, which is a summary really of the whole Bible, according to what we studied in the previous meetings, is also the truth. So is it clear in your minds what the three principal roles of the Holy Spirit are? Number one, to convict us of what? Sin. Inside and out. With the spiritual what? With the spiritual law of God. Secondly, in your desperation you say, who will deliver me from this body of death? Where does the Holy Spirit point you? He points you to Jesus as the Savior from sin. And then he guides you into all of the truth as it's found where? As it's found in God's holy word. However, do you know that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit 
can be resisted. I'm not going to read the verses. You have them on your list. I'll just make reference to them. Acts 7, verse 51, Stephen tells those who are present, he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit can be quenched? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, quench not the Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit can be grieved? The Bible says so in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, grieve not the Holy Spirit with which you were sealed. So the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be quenched. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. Hebrews 3 verse 13 says that when the Holy Spirit is resisted, the result is that the heart becomes what? Becomes hardened. And 1 Timothy 4 verse 2 speaks of people whose consciences are seared as with a hot iron. In other words, when the Holy Spirit tries to point out our sin, when the Holy Spirit tries to point out the solution for sin in Jesus, when the Holy Spirit tries to lead us into all the truth, we can resist because we have freedom of choice. We can quench the voice of the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can harden our hearts. We can say no to the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you this. The unpardonable sin is not one particular sin that you commit all of a sudden. The unpardonable sin is a continued resistance to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Telling you, you are a sinner, you need Jesus, and you need to follow the truth. When we resist the voice of the Holy Spirit, our heart becomes harder and harder until eventually the Holy Spirit will speak and we will not be able to hear. In other words, the sin against the Holy Spirit is the culmination of a process of saying no to the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations so you can understand what I'm saying. How many of you use an alarm clock to wake up in the morning? Oh, several of you do. I have my own incorporated alarm clock. You know what I mean? Yeah, you just kind of wake up at the same time every morning. You'd like to sleep in, but you can't. You know, that's, that's kind of like me. But what happens if you have your alarm clock set for 6 o'clock in the morning, and when it rings, you don't turn it off, you let it ring and ring and ring and kind of, until it kind of dies off. And then the next morning, you do the same thing. The following morning, you do the same thing. And you do it for several days in a row. What happens eventually? You know it. The alarm sounds, and what? And you can't hear it. Because you've ignored it so much that the alarm can sound loud as ever, but you can't hear it. Why? Because you have not responded to it. Are you with me? The same is true with the voice of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is God's great alarm. He says, you're a sinner. Inside and out. The wages of sin is death. Here's the law. It proves that you're a sinner. And then he says, but there's a solution for your problem. You see, there's Jesus. I'm on this earth to represent Jesus, to lead you to Jesus. And so if you come to Jesus, his sin, his, he has carried the sin of humankind upon himself. He has paid the debt. And if you confess your sin, if you're sorry for your sin, he will cleanse you from all sin and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then he says, also, I have been sent to show you the truth of Jesus as it's found in his holy word. And he wants you to walk into, in that truth. Now, if you don't listen to what the Holy Spirit says, your heart becomes harder and harder and harder until you reach the point where the Holy Spirit screams and you can't hear him anymore. That is a tragic moment. Let me give you another illustration so you can understand what I'm saying. In order for you to receive communication over the radio, you have to have a transmitter and you have to have a receiver. Is that correct? 
The Holy Spirit is the transmitter. We are the receiver. How much good is a radio with the knob turned to the off position? Huh? I can't hear you. Oh, thank you. Some of you believe it's none. Is the radio station transmitting? But what's the problem? Where's the problem? The receiver, when you hear it start coming on you, turn it off. What would happen if you took that receiver and you smashed it against the ground? You know, the person who's transmitting the message could transmit it till he's blue in the face. And it would do you absolutely no good. Why? Because the person on the other side is speaking, but your receiver has been broken, and so you can't hear what he's saying. That's what I'm talking about when I refer to the sin against the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to show us our sin, wants to lead us to Jesus, wants to guide us into all of the truth. But when I say no, 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 eventually it comes to the point where the Holy Spirit transmits his message, but my ears are so closed, my heart is so closed, that no matter how loud he speaks, I can't hear him. And when I reach that point, folks, there's nothing more that the Holy Spirit can do for me. It's that tragic scene where God says, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. Terrible words. Now let me share with you tonight, there, there are three types of people who are in danger of committing this unpardonable sin. You say three types of people? What are the three types? The first type is the type that Jesus was speaking to in Matthew chapter 12, the passage that we read. Is Jesus speaking to people who apparently are religious? Yes? He's speaking to the religious leaders. He's speaking to priests, to the scholars, to the elders, to the administrators. They claim to be keeping God's holy law. Did Jesus give these individuals abundant evidence that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, before Jesus related what we read in Matthew 12? You read the context before. Jesus taught with authority. He cast out demons. He healed the sick people. They could see clearly that this was the work of the Son of God. It was the power of God. Time and again, time and again, they were shown this. And yet when the moment came for them to make a decision, they attributed what Jesus was doing to the power of the prince of demons. It's a terrible thing when you reject and reject and reject, ultimately, who takes control of your life? Satan takes control of your life. Now, what is the first type of uh, individual who is in danger of committing the unpardonable sin? The first type is what I call the self-righteous sinner. That's the Pharisees. Did the Pharisees need, feel a need for Christ? Did they, need a, did they feel a need for forgiveness? Did they feel that they were sinners? No. They felt that they were good. They felt that they were righteous. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican that went to the temple to pray? What did the Pharisee say? He said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I pay my tithe. He says, and especially, Lord, I'm so thankful I'm not like this miserable publican over here. The Bible says that he went home justified by himself. Whereas the publican who felt his need and confessed his sin went home justified by God. Let me ask you, how do you help someone who is ill, but he doesn't recognize that he's ill? He refuses to recognize it. No matter how many tests they go through, the doctor says, you have cancer? I don't have cancer, come on. How do you help someone who doesn't feel any need? That's the problem with the Pharisees. They were filled with themselves. They were self-sufficient. There was no way that the Holy Spirit could show them their sins because they felt righteous. There was no way that they could feel that they needed Jesus to forgive them from sin because they felt that they were good and righteous. And therefore they also rejected the truth as it's found in Jesus. Now the sobering fact is, folks, that the last church that is spoken of in the book of Revelation suffers of this disease. What church is that? The church of Laodicea. 
And what, what does that church represent? That's the Muslims. Hmm? I can't hear you. Well, that's the Jews. The Hindus. The Buddhists. No. No. A lot of those people will make it to the kingdom probably faster than we will. Let me ask you. What is the problem with the church of Laodicea? That's the Christian church. The last Christian church in the world before the coming of Jesus. Oh, it's a church that says, I am rich and increased with goods and I have need of nothing. I'm happy, I'm clothed, I'm rich. What more do I lack? How can Jesus help that church? How? He can't. Because it's a church that's blind, miserable, naked, poor, wretched, and yet it thinks it's just the opposite. It feels no sense of sin. It feels no need of Jesus. And therefore it is very close to be vomited from the mouth of Jesus. Which is about the same thing as saying that she has committed what? The unpardonable sin. So the first kind of person who is in danger of committing the unpardonable sin is the self-righteous sinner. Those were the ones that Jesus was talking to. He was saying, in spite of all the signs that I've given you, step by step by step, you have come to attribute this power to the devil instead of attributing the power to the Spirit of God. And if you do that, there's nothing more I can do for you. Because the Holy Spirit is the only agent that can show our sin. He's the only agent that can lead us to Jesus. What more can God do if we don't feel the need of the Holy Spirit? There's absolutely nothing that God can do. But there's a second type of individual who is in danger of committing the unpardonable sin. And that's what I call the unrighteous sinner. You say, well, that's redundant. Or the worldling, we might say. People who have not professed Jesus Christ at all. Now, there are several biblical examples of this. You have, for example, Pharaoh. Incidentally, let me share this with you. Every time that the unpardonable sin is committed, before it's committed, there is great light that God gives. In other words, the unpardonable sin is committed in the presence of brilliant light that God gives. Brilliant information, abundant knowledge. Every time the unpardonable sin is committed, it's not because people don't know, because God sheds his brilliant light in the world and people reject the light. Pharaoh is an example. Some people have struggled over the idea that it says in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But do you know that there are also texts, you have them in your outline, where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now how do we understand this, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, we can use an analogy so that you can understand. You have the sun. When the sun shines on ice, what does it do with the ice? It melts it. What happens when the sun shines on clay? It hardens the clay. Are you with me? Now, what makes the difference between the ice and the clay? The sun is always the same. But that which it shines upon determines whether there's melting or hardening. The sun is a symbol of God's light as it's found in his word. He reveals his light. The Bible is a light onto our path, isn't it? The Bible is a lamp, it says on Psalm, in Psalm 119, 105. It's a lamp. It's a light. And when God shines his light upon us, what can we do? We can do one of two things. We can either pay attention to the light and have the, the truth melt our heart, which means to accept the truth, or on the other hand, we can choose to resist the truth and harden our hearts. The sun is not to blame. God is not to blame for giving us the knowledge and the information. We are to blame for the way in which we react to what God gives us. In Genesis 15 and verse 16, it speaks about the Amorites. Have you ever heard of the Amorites? They were the, the dwellers of the land of Canaan when Israel left the land of Egypt. Did they have an abundance of light from God that this people were the people of God? Yes or no? Oh, they heard about the plagues. Undoubtedly, they knew about God sending bread from heaven. 
They had heard that God sent water from the rock. They'd heard that all of Pharaoh's armies had been drowned in the Red Sea. They'd heard all of these things. They'd heard undoubtedly that the walls of Jericho had crumbled when Israel had marched around seven days and seven times on the seventh day. They knew all of these things. And yet what did they do? They resisted. They said, we will not allow these people to come into Canaan. 400 years earlier, God had told Abraham that the cup of the Amorites was not yet full. But when Israel entered the land of Canaan, the cup of the Amorites was full. They had received abundant light, but they had chosen to reject it. The civilization before the flood is an example of unbelievers who commit the unpardonable sin. Did God give the people before the flood abundant light? Oh, the preaching of Noah, preacher of righteousness, according to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. He got out, he preached every day, 120 years that God was going to send a flood, that they needed to change their lives and get ready for the coming of the Lord. And what did they do? They mocked Noah, they made fun of him. And when Noah made the last invitation to have them go into the ark to save their lives, they refused to do it. Did they commit the unpardonable sin in the presence of abundant light? Yes. Did they choose not to repent of their sins and to claim the power of forgiveness of God? Did they reject walking in the truth as God showed it to them? They most certainly did. In the New Testament, we find two examples. You know, you have the example of Felix, whom the Apostle Paul goes before. The Bible says that the Apostle Paul talked to Felix, governor, he says, listen, there's going to be an end-time judgment when God is going to judge the world. And things really got hot for Felix. And he says, you know, he could hardly stand it anymore because his conscience was being awakened. And he says to Paul, go away now, and I will call you back at a convenient season. He never got called back. He sinned away his day of grace. It happened also with King Agrippa. The story is found in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28 where the Apostle Paul preaches this sermon to Agrippa and, and, and Paul says, Agrippa, you believe, I know you believe, Agrippa. And what does Agrippa say? He says to Paul, Oh, Paul, almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian. Almost saved means totally lost. It also happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Imagine, God sent two angels to these cities. Two angels. There was actually three. One of them stayed with Abraham. Two of them came to the city. And these angels are, are giving the message that God is going to come in destruction against the cities. And the people of that city have the audacity. When these two men are inside the house to surround the house with violence and say, bring out those two men because we want to know them. And I'm not talking about knowing them casually. In the Bible, know is a term for sexual relations. It says in Genesis 4.26 that Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. So they're saying, we want to have homosexual relationships with these angels. And they got more and more violent when Lot said, I cannot allow this to happen. They were going to take Lot and they were going to do violence against him. The Bible says that those two angels grabbed Lot and they pulled him into the house and they closed the door. Do you know what that door closed? That was the doom for Sodom. You see, the door always closes before destruction comes. Probation always closes before the Lord comes to execute his judgment. So there are many examples in the Bible of this type of sinner. People who pay no attention whatsoever to what God has to say in his word. They're not interested in hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit pointing out their sin. They have no interest in coming to Jesus for forgiveness. They have no interest in walking in the truth. They're perfectly happy to live their sinful lifestyle. And if they reach the point where they do it long enough, the voice of the Holy Spirit will no longer be able to be heard. But folks, there's a third class of person who is in danger of committing the unpardonable sin. Not only the self-righteous sinner who doesn't feel he's a sinner, so why does he need the Holy Spirit to point out sin? He feels like he's obeying God's law. 
Why would he need the atonement of Jesus if he's already perfect in his law-keeping? Why should he walk into the, in the truth if he is the truth according to him? Not only is there the second class of individual who is in danger of committing the unpardonable sin, those who never have any interest, who walk a worldly lifestyle and never manifest any interest in spiritual things. There's a third class. And this third class is found within the Christian church. You say, now how could there be a class of individuals within the Christian church who are in danger of committing the unpardonable sin? Let me explain what I mean. I call them Christian sinners. You say, now Christian sinners, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Not really. You see, there are many in the Christian church today who teach that the law of God was nailed to the cross. That Christians don't have to keep the law because Jesus kept it. That the law was for the old covenant, not for the new covenant. That we're not under law. We're under grace. And so the idea among these Christians is to get rid of God's holy law. And you know they actually use the Bible to try and prove it. Let me just share with you three texts which are commonly referred to among those Christians who say that uh, Christians are not required to keep the holy law of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. Romans 3, 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. See, you're not justified by the deeds of the law. You're justified by faith. So what you do or don't do makes no difference. You're saved. Is that what Paul meant? Go just three verses farther down. See, the apostle Paul knew that Christians were going to use this this way, so he says in verse 31, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Does faith do away with God's law? Because you're justified by faith without works of law, does that do away with the law? No, it says here, we establish the law. Another text which is used very frequently is Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. And sometimes I snicker when I hear the way this one is used. It says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Offense means sin or transgression. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So where there's sin, there's what? Lots of grace. So the conclusion is, let's sin a lot so that there's lots of grace. I've heard it used that way. Did Paul know that people were going to use it that way? He sure did. Notice chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The third text which is used, and this is the all-time favorite, is verse 14 of Romans 6. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under what? But under grace. So the idea is, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, so I don't have to keep the law anymore. The law is not really that important. Is that what Paul is really trying to say? You know, what I tell people is, uh, keep on reading, keep on reading. You know, I don't contradict. I say, continue read just a little bit further down. Let's read the next verse. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Why is it that these Christians who claim that the law was done away with, that Christ kept us for it, that nobody can gain the victory over sin, why is it that these people are in danger of committing the unpardonable sin? Let me tell you why. It's because sin is transgression of the law. But if you don't believe that the law is binding anymore, you don't have transgression of the law, and if there's no transgression of the law, why would you need Jesus? Are you with me or not? I was once talking with a young man. He says, he says, oh, I don't have to keep the law. I'm under grace. I said to him, was well, that right? I said, do you repent? He says, of course I repent. I said, yeah, and what do you repent of? He said, well, I repent of sin. I said, yeah, and what is sin? He knew I had him in a corner. He says, well, you tell me. And I said, no, John will tell you. Sin is transgression of the law. So how can you repent of sin, which is transgression of the law, 
if the law was done away with. You see what the devil has done, folks, by saying that the law was done away with? The law points out your sin and your need of Jesus. If you get, a, get rid of the law, you won't feel a need for Jesus. Because the law points out your sin. And when it points out your sin through the Holy Spirit, it shows you that you need whom? Jesus. If you take away the law, you take away sin. Because where there is no law, there can be no transgression. And if you take away sin, you take away what? You take away the need that you have for Jesus. There are several people on your list that committed this sin. Believers. Saul, King Saul, you can read his story. The references are in your list. Judas Iscariot. Did Judas receive lots of light from the Lord? He spent three and a half years with Jesus. And yet he betrayed him. Pontius Pilate. Although he wasn't a believer. Nadab and Abihu. Ever heard of Nadab and Abihu? The two sons of Aaron that took strange fire into the sanctuary? Hmm. Achan. The man who stole the Babylonish garment, it did God give him an abundant opportunity to repent. Sure he did. First he announced, the reason why Israel has been defeated is because there's someone who has committed the grave sin of taking something from Jericho. And Achan was hearing. He didn't step forward, so God says, okay, tomorrow we are going to discover who the culprit is. The whole day passes. Achan still doesn't step forward. So God says, okay, now we're going to choose the tribe that the transgressor belongs to. And the lot fell upon his tribe. Still didn't step forward. So God says, now we're going to discover which uh, family the transgressor belongs to. So lots are cast, they fell upon the family of Achan. Still he doesn't step forward. So God says, now we're going to cast lots and we're going to discover who it is. And so they discovered that it was Achan, and now he says, I have sinned. But folks, when he said, I have sinned, it was not sorrow for sin, it was an admission of sin. It's different to admit sin than it is to repent of sin. You admit sin when you're caught. You repent of sin when you're sorry. So there are many people even within the church who are in danger of committing this sin. God shows them the light, he shows them new truth, he shows them the way. And they say, no, this is too hard, this is different than what I've heard. I haven't heard this all my life. And so they put it to the side, and they put it to the side, until eventually they come to the point where the Bible says that they believe a lie. Do you know, in closing, that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it tells us why many people, probably most people in the Christian world, are going to be lost. Let's go to that passage in closing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. It's speaking about the final Antichrist, and it says that he's going to come with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why do they perish? Because they did not receive what? The love of the truth that they might be saved. What do you have to do to be saved? Receive what? The love of the truth. Verse 11, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe what? The lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And then the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Notice, sanctification of the Spirit and belief in what? In the truth. Jesus said that we're supposed to worship him in spirit and in truth. Some people say, only the Holy Spirit. Other people say, only the truth. Jesus wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. So what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? Very simple. It's the culmination of a long process of saying no to the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
When you reach the point where the Spirit speaks and you no longer can listen or you no longer can hear because you've shut him out over a long period of time, there's nothing more that the Holy Spirit can do in your life. Kind of reminds me of the story of Gulliver's Travels. You remember the story of Gulliver's Travels? He arrives at this island where they have the little people and they start tying him up with threads and he says, threads, big deal. What are threads going to do? So they keep on binding thread and thread and thread. What happens if you bind enough thread around somebody? It becomes a rope, right? And he was bound and he could not escape. That's the way the unpardonable sin takes place. Little rejections. Every time we reject, a thread is bound, another thread, until eventually we're bound in our own sins. We feel no need to repent. We feel no need of Jesus. And we feel no need of walking in the truth. We've learned a lot of truth in this seminar, haven't we? Now we have to decide what we're going to do with that truth. It can't come in one ear and go out the other. Everybody who has heard it is responsible for it now. I'm not saying this to scare you, because I'll tell you folks, there's nothing more beautiful than walking in the truth, walking in the light. What a privilege it is. It might not be as easy as you think, because people won't understand your friends, who you thought were your friends, will look down on you. Your family will not understand. You have problems at your work, whatever. It doesn't make any difference. The important thing is to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, pray for God's light, study God's word, and in the third place, walk in the word of God as he reveals it. Is that your desire tonight? To walk in the word of God, in the will of God, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for showing us in your holy word what the sin against the Holy Spirit is. Lord, we realize that the Holy Spirit is the only instrument that you can use to bring us to the feet of Jesus. That's why the sin against the Holy Spirit means the end, because there's nothing more that you can do for us. I ask, Lord, that you will bless every person gathered here tonight. Many of those who are here have heard these truths for the first time. I ask, you, Lord, that you will give them the courage to step out in faith and to obey the truth as it is in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your word in this world of darkness. We ask that through the power of your spirit, you will allow us and empower us to walk in that truth that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.